This is the Voice Overwork Podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services. This is Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. On the podcast today, we take a little deeper look into a book introduced in a previous podcast with a chapter-by-chapter look at Law and Grace in the Bible, written by David Adoyi, narrated by Russell Newton for Hot Ghost Productions. This has been Law and Grace in the Bible, written by David Adoyi, narrated by Russell Newton for Hot Ghost Productions. Copyright 2020 by David Adoyi Ministry. Production copyright by David Adoyi Ministry. One, the seven dispensations. When God created the world, he saw that everything he made was good, including humans, and that was in the beginning. Before now, his original plan was for humanity to replenish and dominate the earth. That was a great responsibility. It meant that man was to take care of everything that he had created. So man was a caretaker of God's minor creations. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis 1, 28, KJV At every point, God was considering what was good for humanity. Being a perfect being, he wanted to be sure that there was nothing lacking of all that he had made. He must have thought, The Garden of Eden is so large, and the work must be so much for Adam to do alone. So, he said in Genesis 2.18, KJV, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him help meet for him. With that, he created the woman, and life on earth began. The same way life had begun, the same way it will also come to an end someday, with everyone standing before God during the great white throne judgment. However, in between these times are God's divine plan for mankind, known as the ages or the dispensations. Speaking of the dispensations, many theologians believe that there are just three of them. Others believe that there are over 30. However, delving deeper into the scriptures, you'll find that we have only seven of them that are biblical. God's plan for humanity across the ages was forestalled as a fallout of man's disobedience to his divine commandment. But Chapter 2 A quick background of the law. Everything that happens in life is for a reason. When some things happen, it's usually a fallout of some past events. The situation is the same for the Jews, who found it convenient to always get on God's wrong side, murmuring, complaining, and committing various abominable acts at the slightest opportunity. Their rebellion and sinfulness had long set God's teeth on edge, getting him angry very often. With that, he decided it was time to call them to order all at once. It began shortly after the people had been freed from Egyptian slavery and had pitched their tent in Mount Sinai. They had just miraculously made it out of the Red Sea and were looking for a safe place to pitch their tent. But the journey took them through the wilderness of Shur, where they had traversed for three days without water. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Before going further, 
One question people often ask themselves is whether the Israelites were wrong to have requested water when it was clear they needed it. The simple answer to that is no. Of course, water is a legitimate need. However, you see, when dealing with God, you really have to be careful. God is interested in your spiritual state just as much as He is in your physical state. He looks at the state of your heart when you say, act, or behave in a certain way. For the children of God, their actions betrayed the worst of their characters. It almost looked like they were looking for every occasion to blame God for their situation despite everything, including the miracles which He did to save them from bondage. Indeed, leading the children of Israel will prove to be a very difficult task and a very heavy burden for Moses to carry alone. Chapter 3 Sundry Laws of the Bible and Their Application to Modern-Day Life There's a growing division among members of the body of Christ. On one end of the divide are those who believe that the laws given to the Jews at the time of the Old Covenant are still applicable to New Testament believers today. On the other end, however, are those who argue that since we are under grace and operating in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ has abolished everything regarding the law. From Paul the Apostle's epistles, there's a resounding emphasis on the fact that we are saved through the blood of Jesus and not the Mosaic Law. So, saying or holding onto the idea that the law is still in full force to guide Christians in this dispensation is very orthodox, which brings us to the need to clarify something on this delicate subject. Shortly after God gave the principles summarized in the Ten Commandments, He revealed a new set of laws known as the Mosaic Law for the new generation of the Israelites to live by. When God instituted these laws, whether in the Old Covenant or New Covenant, it wasn't out of an arbitrary desire to show off as God or for sheer demonstration of His power. And, unfortunately, some believers think of God in terms of being a tyrant, one who declares whatever he wants and gets it as he wants or there will be consequences. That is not true about God. You need to understand that the nature of God is good. Jesus attested to it when he responded to the man who called him good in Matthew 19.17. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. That proves how much he desires righteousness, and that's because it is his nature, the very one he wants us all to have. We can see this in Genesis 1.26 when he Chapter 4. A Glimpse of the Old Covenant and New Covenant Laws Another major conflict among individuals of the Christian faith is the need to balance whether the Ten Commandment laws are the same as a covenant. To set the record straight from the beginning, the Ten Commandments are not old covenants. To better understand this, you need to understand what a covenant is. It's an agreement between two people to achieve something of mutual interest. It's simply a promise made by two different people to do or not do a particular thing. All over the scriptures you can find that God dealt with humanity based on covenants. After Noah's salvation from the flood that devastated the whole world, God promised Noah using a rainbow as a symbol of his everlasting covenant never to destroy mankind with the flood again. He also made a promise to Moses on several occasions. He had promised that he would free Israel's children from Egyptian captivity and bring the people into the promised land. 
Once God had desired to wipe out a whole generation of the Israelites due to their incessant disobedience and sinfulness. Still, following Moses' passionate plea for God's mercy, they were spared. God had established a covenant of royalty with David, not just for him alone, but for his entire generation. A great testament to the fulfillment of that covenant is that Jesus, the Holy Son of God, descended from the lineage of David. And this is why, in many parts of the New Testament statements, you'll find most of his followers calling him, Jesus, thou Son of David. Now, the most important covenant of all, it is the promise of God the Father to the Son to save the world from their sin. Jesus accepted and came to the world as a blameless, sinless lamb that would be sacrificed for mankind's sin. 5. Understanding Grace and How It Works Chapter 5 will expose the reader to the secrets of God's grace, what it does, its purpose, and how it works in the life of a believer. This provides a brief background to how grace came about, using the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as the focal point. When you look at grace from the standpoint of Christ's sacrifice alone, you'll be limiting your understanding of what it means in its entirety. Of course, grace has many definitions. 1. It could mean the rare privilege of salvation given to man through the sacrifice of Christ's vicarious death on the cross of Calvary. You had earlier seen how Christ's death ushered us into a new covenant with God, which not only accommodated the Jews, but made provision for the entire world to be a part of this pact. Grace is also a release of the measure of God's Spirit upon you to help you live a holy life and obey His Word. If you find it very easy keeping to God's Word and living righteously, don't take it for granted. It's purely an act of God's grace over your life. When you realize this, you would not be quick to condemn people struggling to find their place in Christ. Your only concern will be how to save them and get them to benefit from the grace you are enjoying. Another definition of God's grace is the unmerited favor and love of God. An example is when God spares you when you should have been punished for your wrongdoings and wickedness. It could also be seen in a situation where God qualifies you where no one thinks you to be qualified. This is clear in David's shepherd-to-king story as told in the scriptures, which would be discussed later in this chapter. Grace can also be defined as an... Chapter 6. Biblical Examples of God's Grace, Even in the Old Testament In the previous chapter, you've seen that the word grace can be interpreted to mean many things leading to various definitions by which grace is explained. However, the bone of contention among believers is whether grace existed in the Old Testament or not, especially since the children of God were dealt with according to the law. To answer this again, you'll have to go back to the previous chapter to understand that grace is subjective. It occurs in different accounts in the Old Testament, especially when you consider other definitions of grace mentioned previously. In one way, you can view God's grace to the children of Israel as an act of mercy, which was particularly obvious in his kind dealings with them. But also note that while God was trying to be kind to his people, he maintained a very disciplined relationship with them based on his law and account of his nature as God. In the Old Testament, God showed mercy to different people in the Bible at different times. In the same way, 
He also enforced immediate punishment on those who failed to understand his nature and took him for granted. For example, let's see the case of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, 1-8. And David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David, all the house of Israel, played before... Chapter 7. Real-Life Stories of What Grace Can Do By now, it's clear that the word grace is used contextually, depending on a situation or how an event spans out. From the definitions given earlier, grace could manifest in different ways, varying from individual to individual. For example, while someone considers his ability to always make the distinction in class an act of grace, another may attribute the willpower to overcome temptation to God's grace. Others may see in grace everyday miracles that occur in their lives. What grace is to one may be something else to another person. However, you cannot overrule the general meaning of grace as the unmerited favor given by God to those who choose to follow Him. What this means is that just by deciding to obey God's Word, you become qualified, merit-based on grace, to enjoy other blessings that come from having a beneficial relationship with God. In other words, what you cannot get ordinarily becomes freely available to you because of the grace of God that is now available for everyone. All through various ages, times, and seasons, grace had never ceased to be in action. Just like grace, the law has always been active, working hand-in-hand -hand to make pleasing God more manageable and effective. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible contains many episodes of God's overwhelming grace playing out in people's lives at different times. You've already seen some of these in previous chapters. The good news is that even though many people in scriptural times benefited from God's grace, the great privilege has been extended to us, Gentiles, by faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. In today's world, there are people whose lives have been transformed by God's grace. You may have heard... Chapter 8. Grace, the Power of the Gospel Once upon a time, a young man worked as a driver's boy, calling passengers into the bus, collecting money from passengers, and alerting the driver of each stop. This was his routine and he does this every morning until the evening. He was quite courteous and humble the way he handled his business. An elderly man, who happened to be a Christian, had grown to notice him, so every day he looks out for his bus so that he can always join him. Whenever he enters the bus, he would take some time to always talk with this young boy, sharing the glad tidings of the gospel with him. At the end of each meeting, he would offer him a tract and ensure that he tries to read it. The next morning when they met, he would ask after him and his family, then he would ask if he read the tract. Sometimes he would answer yes, other times he would say no, with the excuse of a busy schedule. This way, both the driver's boy and the elderly man became so close that one might think they were related. 
Time after time, the elderly man kept giving this young boy tracts and persuading him to read them, and he would answer with a promise that he doesn't usually keep. The elderly man would look at him and ask, When will you give your life to Christ and accept him as your personal Lord and Savior? And he would smile shyly and respond, I will, sir. His answer had always been indefinite. He hadn't seen the need to accept the offer of salvation immediately, with a smile that crossed his tired and sweaty face. One day, the elderly man waited at the bus stop, waiting for his regular bus to stop by so he could board it. Eventually it came, and heaving a sigh of relief he headed towards it, entered, took a seat, and sat down. Then he looked up to greet his friend, the driver's boy. He wasn't the one. It was someone else. Chapter 9 What It Means to Live in God's Grace There are many schools of thought as regards to what it means to live in God's grace. Some believe that God loves some especially, giving them a grace superior to others, but that is not entirely the case. Again, it depends on the context being used. However, it is usually God's sovereign right to decide what to bless anyone with if it is regarding special skills, talents, and abilities. However, this does not mean that if you ask, you will not be given. In Matthew 7, 7, God says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. For example, God may decide to give you a small assignment based on your perceived capabilities, and another, a greater one. It's all God's prerogative. Paul wrote that some people were made teachers, evangelists, prophets, and so on, each one according to the measure of the Spirit of God. So, what does it mean to live in God's grace? In Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This passage of the Scriptures provides a distinct revelation of what is expected of everyone under grace. As long as you have accepted in faith the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary, you are now conformed to His image and nature, so believers can behave like Christ, act, talk, work, and do everything just like Him. Christ imparts His nature into us, helping us have real holiness and not a form of godliness, according to 2 Timothy 3.5, which must be avoided. Basically, living in grace essentially means living your life to please God alone. Living with the consciousness of Chapter 10. Receiving God's Grace This chapter will build upon the concluding part of the preceding chapter to educate the reader on how to receive and sustain God's grace using the story of the prodigal son. While God's grace is available for everyone, it's not just for anybody at the same time. The grace of God is God's gift to His children. Thankfully, there is still an opportunity for those who have not received God's grace to do so and start living a victorious life in Him. The first step is to surrender your life to Christ. Accept that you're a sinner and confess your sins. Believe in the Lord and His saving grace. Confess that He is your Lord and Savior. It's as simple as ABC. If you want to start receiving God's best, then you must be willing to surrender to His will alone, and by that, you give Him total control over your life. When you do this, He will start ordering and aligning your steps into His divine plan for your destiny.
He will send His Holy Spirit to guide and teach you all things. He will also fill you with His grace and power so that you can effectively carry out the divine assignment given to you. Will the grace only help you in ministry? It depends on what you define as ministry. To put it simply, ministry is an opportunity to serve God and humanity. So, whether you're a pastor, lawyer, doctor, soldier, pilot, or anything at all, as long as it helps you make meaningful contribution towards humanity while pleasing God, that is a ministry. You are fulfilling your purpose, your divine mandate. So, the grace of God empowers you to discharge your assignments effectively. You can only identify your true purpose when you come into a divine relationship with God through the grace made available for you. Now that you've been fully integrated, please be sure to visit Amazon.com or Audible.com for more information on this book and the author. With an eclectic collection of water cooler knowledge, inspirational stories, and motivational thoughts from some of the newest audiobooks on the market, this has been the Voice Overwork Podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services.